Did you know we spend a third of our lives asleep? Yet sleep's often elusive for many of us, myself included. But sleep is essential for memory, emotional balance, and even tissue repair. And when we trade sleep for late night distractions or we just can't sleep, we risk health complications such as heart issues, high blood pressure, a weakened immune system, and impaired cognitive function where even the simplest decisions seem insurmountable. And women are twice as likely to suffer from insomnia than men, mostly due to factors such as hormonal changes and stress. Welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. Today, we're delving into the world of sleep with our expert guest, and we're going to talk about all things sleep, how to get to sleep, stay asleep, what works and what doesn't. We also have some important information on medical issues to look out for that may be the reason you don't feel rested and when you should consult a healthcare provider. And just a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. If you have personal medical questions, we encourage you to speak with your healthcare provider. I have been waiting for this interview for so long because I have my own questions to ask because probably like you, sleep can be very elusive. And when you don't get enough sleep, obviously you don't feel your best. So today we have an expert in just that area. Dr. Val Cacho is a sleep specialist, an integrative sleep specialist, which we'll talk about in just a moment. She's also CEO of Sleepphoria, an online women's education uh, platform about sleep. And she even has a clinical practice called Sleep Life Med, which is a telesleep company. So I'm really interested to hear about that as well. So Val, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. My pleasure, Mitzi. So excited to be here. Thank you. Well, you know what, let's just kind of start the basics. You know, I think that we all feel like we don't, you know, we, we kind of know when we don't have enough sleep, mm-hmm. but what, what's the range of normal? When do we know that it's a problem? Ooh, that's a great question, Mitzi. And what I've come up to hear women say is that I didn't think it was not normal to be tired, but as we get older, especially in the range of 40, you know, especially if you're a mom, maybe you're you're taking care of either young kids, your kids are going to high school or college, and then you also have elderly parents, and you're also working, you're doing a lot. And so sometimes people just think that, well, it's just because, you know, I'm getting older, my, my kids are doing this, I'm taking care of, there's just a lot on my plate, and that's why I'm tired. But I don't think it's not, it shouldn't be normalized. It may just be a sign of an underlying medical sleep condition. So when we take a look at adults, you know, the National Sleep Foundation recommends seven to nine hours of sleep. And if you're getting that amount of sleep, excellent, because a third of us in the U.S. are not getting it. And certain states like Hawaii even get less than that. But at you know, the end of the day is if you're, wait, if you're wait, tired. Can, stop right there. Sure. Sorry, why, why is, does geography matter? Is it because of the way that the sun shines? Yes, definitely. <laughs> if you live in a place that has more sunlight, 
you know, you're just going to be more active. So think of Alaska in the summertime. I have a sister-in-law who lives there. It's bright for like 14, 16 hours. It's the weirdest thing. We were there in the summer and it was 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, the kids were just up like (laughs) playing. And I'm just like, oh, this is strange. But yeah, when there's more sunlight, you're just more active, right? Because sunlight blocks the release of melatonin, which is the sleep promoter helps you go to sleep. And so the opposite, when it's dark out, you sleep more. So in places like Hawaii, where there's a lot of natural sunlight, well, you're going to be up and about more. But at the same time, too, um, social economic factors also play a role. So a lot of people have, you know, multiple jobs just to make a living and being able to survive in, in a place like Hawaii, where a lot of the things are imported. So cost of living can be really high. And so that certainly can play a role in how much you're actually sleeping as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I would assume also that shift workers may have some challenges. Oh, most definitely. Yes. So I interrupted you. So please continue in terms of you were talking about, you know, the the ranges of normal, quote unquote, um, and uh, seven hours. Gosh, that sounds like such a luxury. (laughs) It seems like I haven't gotten seven hours. I can't sleep for seven hours. And I I'm assuming that that's also part of aging. Yeah, definitely. So as we get older, there are normal changes to your sleep architecture, so your sleep stages. So there's stages one, two, three, and then REM. And then we cycle through these four stages, depending on how long you sleep, every 90 minutes, four to six times a night. As you get older, some of the age of 55, 60, you have less deep sleep, which is stage three, and also less REM sleep. And that's just sort of facts of life, gifts of father time, we like to say, or mother nature. (laughs) Um, The other aspect is, you know, as we get older, there are social factors that could play a role as well. Like talking about your, you know, taking care of elderly parents and you have children, if you have children. And the other factor is menopause. As we go through hormonal shifts, um, we lose estrogen, we lose progesterone, and that can actually play a role in our sleep stages and increase our risk for having things like obstructive sleep apnea, which is very, very common for women. You know, let's talk a little bit about that sure. because you kind of alluded to the fact that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't just assume that what you're hap- what you're having or not having in terms of sleep is normal, exactly. and so. When should you go to a physician and why is that so important? I would say anytime you feel like things are quite right. And I always encourage people to trust their intuition because I think you know and sometimes I think you brush it off and you wait until things like high blood pressure develop or maybe you have a hard time losing weight or maybe you're developing diabetes. You know, certainly those are potential markers for an underlying sleep condition because if you're not getting enough sleep through, you know, not prioritizing sleep, start changing yourself or underlying sleep conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea can lead to those chronic medical conditions. But I always say it's good to just talk to a professional about what you're going through because honestly, it doesn't hurt. Sure. And let's back up a little bit. Sure. Talk to us a little bit about what is obstructive sleep apnea and why is that so important? Yeah, thank you so much. Obstructive sleep apnea, well, it's basically the bread and butter of sleep medicine. And it's a medical sleep condition where the muscles of your upper airway, your posterior oropharynx, basically the tongue and the muscles more downstream in the neck, can relax when you sleep at night. And so snoring can be a marker of this. Snoring happens when either the tongue narrows or the muscles downstream um, start to collapse. And I think of snoring like whistling. So I always have my hand up here and it's as the airway starts to narrow and you're starting to snore, 
you make a noise, right? Air going through a narrow tube makes a noise. And if that airway gets so small that air has a hard time going through, you have the apnea. Apnea means cessation of airflow or no airflow. And then your brain will say, hey, you got to wake up and breathe. You need oxygen. It's compatible with life. So then you have that gasping or choking. And it opens, your airway opens, and then you fall back asleep and it narrows and closes again. And the problem part for women is that they may not know this actually happens. You know, maybe if they have a bed partner, that person is fast asleep snoring themselves, um, and they may not tell them. And sometimes women just have more subtle symptoms, meaning they don't really know that they gasp or choke, but they wake up just feeling unwell, feeling like they're not really rested, or maybe having those early morning awakenings, you know, waking up at one, two, three o'clock and just having a hard time going back to sleep. Or maybe just waking up with a headache in the morning or feeling a little bit more irritable. And the biggest part for obstructive sleep apnea that I am really concerned about is some of the research shows that 93% of women are undiagnosed. You know, when you take a look at a condition like obstructive sleep apnea, it's very male-dominated, male-oriented. A lot of the research was done in men. I was talking to a, a fellow sleep doctor about this recently, and she, she thinks she read some research about it, is that women are just so complex. And so it made for a cleaner study just to remove women from the study and just study men, right? Because we're caregivers. Same old we're, story, we're, no matter you know, what the condition is. Exactly. exactly. We have like more anxiety <laughs> and that can lead to, you know, problems with our sleep. So it was a cleaner study just to remove women. And those hormones. Yeah, and, and those hormones. That, you know, yeah. And I think confounding there's, variables. there's no what to do with that. So <laughs> with that said, it's such a common condition. One in five adults have it, especially as we get older. So 40 is a little bit on the younger side, but definitely people can, in their 40s can have it. I have kids who have it, but it's as we go through perimenopause, as those hormones start to fluctuate, right? Progesterone is a sleep hormone. It helps with GABA. It helps us relax. And also it helps, you know, strengthen our upper airways. So when we lose estrogen and progesterone, the rates of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea, I use those terms interchangeably, actually double to triple someone who is postmenopausal and premenopausal. So such a common condition. And you know, other things are, it's sort of our society culture, the way we look at snoring, you know, the term snore like a man, right? You know, like truckers snore, or, you know, we always think of people <laughs> who have high body mass indexes. Right. I've had some women, you know, pr pretty, you know, frank symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. And, and they were told, well, you know, I've had this probably at least four or five years, but my doctor just said, no, your neck size is only, you know, 12 inches. There's no way you could have obstructive sleep apnea. So a lot of our general practitioners, and you know, not to fault them, we weren't trained in sleep medicine, specifically obstructive sleep apnea. And so if you are having concerns for sleep apnea, you know, talk to your doctor about it. And if they don't really know, try to find a, you know, board certified sleep physician. There's not a lot of us out there, but, you know, there are certainly resources. There's a lot of online programs um, where you could do telehealth and see a sleep doctor in your state. And as you said, you can even do some of these programs um, or these tests um, at home. Exactly. And talk a little bit about the significance of sleep apnea, yes. because it really has some significant medical consequences. Yeah, it's really surprising, because when you don't get enough sleep, you know, we can start from head to toe. What happens to your memory? So sleep loss from obstructive sleep apnea of insomnia has been associated with things like dementia. Um, going deeper, you know, your heart, cardiovascular disease and obstructive sleep apnea is huge. So people who already have high blood pressure, people who have 
atrial fibrillation, irregular heartbeat, people who have heart failure, if you don't have your obstructive sleep apnea treated and you have, you know, comorbid condition, it can just make those conditions worse, you know. The short story is, is if you're not, if your heart doesn't get enough oxygen when you sleep, it has to work harder and harder. And you don't want to stress your heart out even more than it's already stressed out. Same along the same lines, if your brain's not getting enough oxygen, it can increase your risk for stroke. People can have seizures um, at night from not getting enough oxygen. Your immune system can be impacted when you're not getting an adequate amount of sleep. I have some nephrologists, some kidney specialists that send their patients to me. So almost, you know, any organ that needs oxygen can be affected by obstructive sleep apnea. That's so true. And so I think that, again, that's so important um, for our listeners to hear. So we, so we need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. And, you know, you go back to the, the point that you made that it's kind of um, developmental as you mm-hmm. get older, that you lose that ability to do those things. But does that mean that you still need to do it? You know, seven to nine is what's recommended. I'm big on cardiovascular health. My dad's a cardiologist. You know, (laughs) getting at least six hours is shown to, you know, be cardioprotective. So if you are going to look for a number and you feel like seven is just too much because in the U.S. we prioritize hustle, you know, work, 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 work. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll sleep when I'm retired. And I'm like, well, (laughs) you know, it could be too late (laughs) because if you're shortchanging yourself now, you're almost digging yourself in early grave. So try to get at least six. Seven is definitely better. But at the same time, too, I don't like to do too much fear mongering because I feel like the media already does that for us in social media because I have people that come in and they'll read, you know, in, in an article saying, you know, doc, if I don't get eight hours, I'm going to develop dementia. And I'm, you know, scared. scared and I can't that. sleep yeah. because they're so And I can't worried. sleep. Yeah. And then now it's like <laughs> compounding factors. And I'm like, well, like, right. you know, I always think, okay, the piece of the dementia pie, right? Sleep is a big one. I'm biased. It's, I think it's a really big chunk. But so is your diet. So is your exercise. You know, so is your smoking status. So is your genetics. And so we like, I like to put it in that context and sort of take that sure. step back, maybe that bird's eye view where, yes, you know, this article, you know, its headlines are going to grab people's attention, but I don't want it to scare you. I want it to empower you. You know, what do you need for your own health, right? You know, do you already have high blood pressure? Typically, you know, maybe, maybe not. You know, are you a smoker? Okay, no. Are you exercising? Yeah. Okay. How about your diet? Well, maybe, you know, I can improve that. And so it makes it a lot more manageable. Exactly. Yeah. And to your point about, I believe you you talked a little bit about how, you know, lack of sleep can make you feel, you know, not as sharp and maybe even your mood. And going back to if you think you have a problem with sleep to check it out, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the possibility of um, other things that could be going on, such as depression. Yes. And I would assume that, again, it's kind of a vicious circle. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. There's almost no mental health condition that is not impacted by sleep, which is huge, right? If you think of someone who has bipolar, right? Mania, right? They're up all night. They're having, um, you know, issues, you know, winding down because their brain is so active. And then depression, maybe you're oversleeping or also depression is associated with early morning awakenings. So it's almost like if you're not getting enough sleep, that can make your anxiety, depression, you know, underlying mental health condition worse. And also with that, if you have an underlying mental health condition, it can impact the quality of sleep that you have. So I work pretty closely with some psychiatrists because it's a two-pronged approach. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, 
Let's talk about what can we do if we're not getting enough sleep. Yeah. Well, first off, listen to great podcasts like Mitzi and educate yourself. (laughs) Because I think the number one thing is prioritize it. I think if you're listening to us today, you're here because you're interested in your own health. And I always think that's the first step. You know, figure out your why. Why isn't it important for you to try to get maybe a half an hour more of sleep or an hour more of sleep at night? Is it because maybe your mom or your father have suffered from dementia and you don't want that to be the same fate as you? Or maybe you've had your recent checkup with your doctor and you're not quite in the diabetic range, but your numbers are starting to creep up or even maybe they've diagnosed you with prehypertension. So if you're interested in health, sleep is foundational to that, just as important as getting sunshine, drinking water, enough water, getting healthy nutrition, moving your body. And I always think even more so, because guess what? If you're tired, if you're sleepy, it's going to be hard to move. It's so hard to cook a healthy meal. You're going to see the drive through. You're going to go through it because it's, <laughs> it's almost like instant, right? It's hitting that easy button. Yeah, but if you get better sleep, right, you're going to have that energy. It's like, oh, okay, now I have energy to go to the grocery store, cut up those vegetables, you know, make that healthy meal, and then clean up after. And I'm going to feel so much better because it's nourishing to my body. So sleep helps you do that. Let's take a moment. Sure. You are a sleep specialist. So what does that mean? And on top of that, you're an integrative sleep specialist. So talk a little bit about that. And then let's talk a little bit about... um, what one should do in terms of getting good sleep? Oh, that's a great question. Some people don't realize sleep physicians are their own specialty. So my background is actually internal medicine, which is a a three-year residency program. And I'm a doctor for adults, so men and women over the age 18. Then after that, I did a one-year fellowship in sleep medicine through the Cedars-Sinai program in Los Angeles, California, where a lot of the bulk of what I do was obstructive sleep apnea, so treating patients with CPAP, um, reading sleep studies, doing a lot of diagnostic work. Also part of sleep medicine are conditions called narcolepsy, restless leg, periodic movements, REM behavior disorder, and then insomnia. So those are the bulk of it, but there's actually over 100 sleep disorders out there. Um, A lot of different parasomnias like sleepwalking and sleep talking, um, which all we always think of sleep medicine is, you know, rule out sleep apnea first and then see what gets better. <laughs> That's basically what we do. So sleep medicine is a year fellowship. And then I did an online integrative fellowship through University of Arizona that was um, founded by Dr. Andrew Weil in Tucson. And the way I describe integrative medicine is all the things that you didn't learn in med school that can help someone heal. So what does that mean? <laughs> like Ayurvedic medicine, energy medicine, Chinese medicine, nutrition. Um, but I think a lot of it is just giving your patient the time and space to feel comfortable and share their story and to help them along their journey. I use the integrative sleep part for more insomnia. And sometimes the people I talk to have insomnia, it's because they're lonely. And there's really no pill for that or operation that you can help solve that. Or maybe they've had broken relationships and you know that's keeping them up. And so it's really taking that holistic, that mind-body approach. And that's what I love about integrative medicine. I incorporate that with sleep because... It just takes all the uniqueness of us humans and how can I help someone along their journey to help improve their sleep health and overall life. So someone comes to you and um, you've ruled out sleep apnea Mm -hmm. and any other of those other um, sleep disturbances. What is your recommendation and how do you base it? Yeah, great question. Well, 
I like to think if it's not broke, don't fix it. So is it someone who's worried well, maybe they're worried about their sleep hygiene, or could they potentially have insomnia? So I have standardized questionnaires that I use to rule out you know, the medical sleep condition. Um, there's an insomnia severity index that can really help me as well. And I just talk about sleep. So there's the sleep triad, which are two biological processes that control sleep. The homeostatic sleep drive, which basically means the longer you're awake, the sleepier you get. And then the other is your circadian rhythm. And so we talk about those two things. Is there a disruption between one or two of those things? If yes, okay, then we can fix that. If the other aspect is the third part of the triad, which is your arousal state. And for a lot of us women, it is, right? We're just sort of go, go, go all day long doing things for our friends, our family, our, our work. And so by the time it's dark, you know, we don't have that wind down time for ourselves. And for some people, it can be really tricky because if people aren't quite or haven't done much personal development or aren't too in tune with their body, they don't really, they may not really know. So then we go really to the basics, you know, what does it feel like to be tired? And you'd be surprised, Mitzi, you know, some people don't know what tired is. Like, it's like, I'm, I'm sleepy and I'm exhausted but what does it mean to be like tired in the sense what are my physical cues is what I'm trying to say and I'm like well when do you yawn and I'm like hmm I don't know or you know like well when do you feel like your brain's starting to slow down your eyes getting heavy and they haven't really paid attention to that and so we start there you know because that's a big clue of when your homeostatic sleep drive you're ready to go to sleep when your circadian rhythm is helping you as well what are the physical cues to look for because sometimes your brain is just so powerful it'll override that right the adrenaline will keep going your brain will keep spinning you know it's interesting because and I don't know if this is related but I know that and I've heard others say that there's this kind of magic moment if you will Mm. that when you're starting to feel sleepy Mm -hmm. you should go to sleep and what I've noticed that if I fight through that Mm. and stay up later then it's much harder for me to go to sleep than it would have been if I had really listened to my body. Yeah. Do you find that that's true? Yeah, I definitely find that that's true. I think it's almost like you're, you're having that, that sweet spot, that magic moment where you're, you're so sleepy and then your circadian rhythm's kicking in your internal clock. Um, and if you miss that window, then it's almost like you have to wait another sleep cycle for it to come, which could be an hour, an hour and a half. Can you make up? for time mm. if you've like had you know a whole week where you've really had to um you know work very hard yeah. and you don't have enough time and you say I'm gonna make up for over the weekend can you really do that it depends on how much sleep is lost and for for how long so we are creatures of habit it is best and ideal for us to try to get at least seven to nine hours on a regular basis but for some people it's just not possible so five to six is probably like the minimum to get. Um, they say it probably takes, you know, three to four days to like make up for it, getting an hour or more sleep. Because if you're shortchanging yourself, you know, if you're skimming around five or even less than that, you can't do that for too long. And some of the things that you know is because on the weekends you're, you're sleeping in later, right? Or when you are sleeping or if you're taking a nap, you're going right into REM, because we need a certain amount of REM. It usually takes over an hour to go into REM sleep. And you would know this by if you instantly start dreaming when you're taking a nap or falling asleep, that means you're really, really sleep deprived because you're trying to get some REM rebound. What's the importance of REM? REM is really great for memory consolidation. 
um, it's it's really the time. So, right, stage one and two are light. Stage three is deep, and then there's REM. So I always think REM is also like our creative phase. If you like, take a look at the EEG pattern on um, EEG is the electroencephalography. When you do a sleep study, the brain waves are actually firing pretty fast. It's fast and slow. It's really interesting and almost looks like you're actually awake. So I like to think of it as all the events during the day. And I'm a little bit old school. I still remember working in an office with filing cabinets. <laughs> all the things get filed away <laughs> so your memories can get right. consolidated. Um, you dream too. So you can be really, really creative um, during that time. And, you know, if you have some bizarre dreams, don't think too much of it because basically it's your subconscious mind coming into fruition at night. And yeah. and I understand that, <clears throat> well, first of all, REM stands for rapid eye yes, movement. Yes, exactly, rapid eye movement. And um, which is at the stage of that we're talking about. And my understanding is also that in certain disease states, mm-hmm. such as maybe fibromyalgia, um, even depression, if you're getting less REM sleep, it exacerbates the problem. Yeah, exactly. Because I know it's it's also hard to say because you need all your stages of sleep. You know, it's hard to isolate them. Like, you know, this is more important. I think there's the big push to like getting more deep sleep because a lot of people use fitness trackers and, you know, the sleep trackers show, okay, yes. maybe my deep sleep is less. <laughs> yeah, but it's like in concert with the other stages. So if you think of maybe like a symphony or a concerto, right? It's like, can you just remove the percussion section <laughs> and still have a really good concerto? <laughs> or can you remove the the wind instruments? And it's like, no, they all work together, right? You know, we all have different seasons. And so it's the coordination of all three that, you know, really can improve our health, right? So sometimes people are like, oh, well, sleep, light sleep doesn't do anything. But yeah, it actually does. And then deep sleep, I like to talk about deep sleep because, you know, we need a lot of deep sleep and we get less of it as we get older and older, but there are things that you can do to improve your deep sleep. But deep sleep is when our trash collectors get turned on, right? The lymphatic system. So our brain actually has its own cleaning system that all the toxins that get built up from the daytime get cleaned out during deep sleep. And so ways to actually improve deep sleep, well, meditate, right? Get your brain waves going a little bit slower because deep sleep is delta wave sleep where your brain waves are going really, really slow. Your diet can really impact how much deep sleep you have. So avoiding highly processed foods, right? Those are associated with more arousals. Eat more fiber foods and then avoid, you know, saturated fats. And then exercise. Sometimes you think of, you know, exercise, you just want to make your body really, really tired and that can help promote sleep. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, But it also can help relieve stress, And it can help us, you know, relax better at night. So definitely there's lifestyle factors. Those are really great points that you just made. Talk a little bit about um, what's termed sleep hygiene. What does that mean? Great question. So sleep hygiene are basically the habits that help promote better sleep. And so typically when you think of sleep hygiene, well, think of, I think of, you know, avoiding light at night, you know, avoiding screens an hour before your bedtime because blue light and white light can delay the release of melatonin, which can impact your sleep. Not eating in bed, not watching TV in bed. You want to use your bed just for sleep and intercourse. Um, A lot of my folks who have insomnia just sort of hang out in bed. And I always say like, imagine you're going to the gym and half the time you're there, you're not exercising, you're just standing there. Or you're going to a restaurant and only half the time you're there, because sometimes people who have insomnia just lie in bed, like waiting for sleep to come. It's almost like you're trained your brain not to sleep by being awake in bed. So you want your bed to be a magnet for sleep. You see your bed, you go to sleep. You go to the gym, you exercise. You go to a restaurant and eat. 
Use your bed just for sleep. Make your bedroom a sleep sanctuary, right? Is it cool, dark, and quiet? Or, you know, do you have stuff everywhere? You know, a cluttered room can lead to a cluttered <laughs> mind, which can keep you from falling asleep. Caffeine and alcohol, those certainly can impact your sleep. Sometimes we don't think of caffeine. Well, I, you know, I took it at you know, last cup of coffee was like 11 o'clock in the morning, which, okay, for most people, probably, you know, four to six hours, half of it's out of your system, but that's only half. So it may even impact your ability to fall asleep at night, which is something we don't always consider. And then the timing of your alcohol as well, um, because alcohol can delay or sort of delay REM or decrease REM and actually can affect your sleep architecture. Some people feel like alcohol can make them fall asleep faster, but mm -hmm. when the breakdown products, um, and sometimes the sugars too, can lead to disrupted sleep architecture. And then are you exercising? Are you getting enough sunshine? Yeah, so lifestyle factors are part of it, but basically sure. healthy habits that help promote sleep. That's and you too. noted that if you, slay, if you lay in bed and you're not sleeping, mm -hmm. then that really sends the wrong message. So if you're in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, should you leave and go do something and then wait to get sleepy and come back? Yeah, so that's classic recommendations for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And I can say that's one of the hardest things for patients to do because we've really trained people to make your beds really comfortable. Um, and it's like, oh, I don't want to have to get out. And so I'm like, okay. So we come up with, you know, I always come up, how can I partner with my patients, help them, you know, move the needle, but also sort of find some compromise. So we come up with like a little scale. So if maybe your frustration level is zero to three, right? Okay, you're awake, but you know, it doesn't really bother you. You're not upset. Okay, you stay in bed. But maybe it's like a four to five or four to six. We're like, oh, getting a little bit frustrated. Not sure if you're going to fall back asleep. Maybe give yourself 10, 15 minutes. And if you're not asleep, then get out of bed. Now, if your frustration level is like a seven to 10, like, oh my goodness, this is the end of the world. I can't sleep. I have this big meeting tomorrow. What am I going right. to do? Okay, get out of bed because you don't want to have that negative energy in your bed. And it's just going to make it harder for you to fall asleep. And going back to leaving the bed, mm -hmm. what should you be doing when you leave the bed that won't overstimulate you so that you can go back to sleep? Yeah, I love this question. Anything you want that avoids too much bright light or blue light, that's calming. So what does that look like? I think I had a patient um, in Hawaii, right? Went to the other room and played the ukulele because <laughs> that was something, singing songs, because you could do that in dark. Um, I try to encourage people to avoid being on their phones. And even if it's, you know, oh, I'm going to go on a listen to a meditation, because your phone is so wrapped up in other things, meaning we do work on our phone, we watch the news on our phone, we do social media. So it can be triggering for different emotional states that you probably don't want to have in the middle of the night. Um, I encourage people to come up with a list of things, you know, can you knit, right? Can you listen to soft music, right? That doesn't involve the use of your phone. Can you read something that's not too stimulating? Find an activity that works for you that helps slow down your brain waves. Yeah. And should you keep the lights low? If at all possible, um, some people have their special lights that have more of an amber hue. So there's like a daytime mm -hmm. mode and then a nighttime mode. Some people like to get really scientific and they only use red light at night because red light isn't mm -hmm. supposed to affect the melatonin release. So yeah, some people get um, really uh, savvy <laughs> with their lighting at home at night. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what about the supplements? Yeah. What... Uh, do you prescribe if it if any at all 
Exactly. So I definitely prefer supplements over any of the traditional hypnotic agents. So like benzodiazepines or Z drugs like zolpidem. Um, and really the reason is because long-term use for those medications have been associated with things like dementia, increased falls in elderly, you know, waking up in the middle of the night can affect your balance, your mobility, and you fall and break your hip. Um, and it's really not helpful. And you take a look at the data, it really shows average sleep time added by some of these pills is anywhere between 20 to 40 minutes. And for mm. women, women, I don't know if you know, Zolpidem was the first medication that the FDA actually gave a gender dosage change, right? So they drop the recommendation from 10 milligrams to 5 milligrams because it's complex sleep behaviors. So what's a complex sleep behavior? It puts you in a deep sleep and you can do the things that you normally do. So believe it or not, I kid you not, I had a lady, <laughs> a couple ladies actually, who will actually get up in the middle of the night and start cooking, right? Get up in the middle of the night. And not know and it. not know it. Drive to the local mm, mini-mart. so scary. Buy an energy drink and go back home. Didn't know how she did it, how she got in her keys, how she paid for it. Mm. And she won't touch any of those things. Not to say it's going to happen to everybody. You know, the percentage is pretty low, but, you know, you don't want to be the person that that happens to. Right. So they're, they, I like to think of sleeping pills as something that, that can be helpful. You know, there's a big stressful life event, you know, maybe someone close to you died and it can be helpful. But chronic use, you know, I would say, is it really doing much help? Sort of like pain medications. Is it really helping? Um, and supplements can help sort of on similar lines because they work on GABA. A lot of the Z drugs work on GABA and benzodiazepines. GABA is a um, neurotransmitter that helps support our sleep. So things like chamomile, valerian root, hops, passion flower um, certainly can help. Is it a cure-all? And it's no. you got to think of it like on the spectrum. Um, if you need help just sort of relaxing a bit, feeling a little bit more drowsy, certainly it can help do that. But regardless whether it's a sleeping pill or a sleep supplement, your brain is so amazingly powerful. It can overcome those chemical effects. And so I see folks sort of on the opposite spectrum where they've tried all the FDA-approved and non-FDA-approved substances, even including cannabis and melatonin and all the supplements I just listed, and they still can't sleep. So mm. that's what I love to do is like help work with folks who believe that there's something biologically wrong with them. They can't sleep. And it's almost like saying, well, I can't breathe. I'm like, well, if you have nose and you have a mouth and you've got lungs, right, you can breathe. It's just like, you know, maybe you lost your way. <laughs> so helping them come back to that where there are things that we can do that can teach you how to get better sleep. I felt like I'm just a, I'm a confidence builder <laughs> in sleep. <laughs> You're a coach. I'm a coach, coach, yeah. <laughs> what about some of the newer devices that uh, suggest that they can you know, help either relax someone or even help them go to sleep. You think of things like weighted blankets. And so certainly they can help. I think people who have maybe some anxiety um, and, and like that extra pressure can help be comforting for them. You know, so people who like that touch can be helpful. Um, there's other devices that are like sound sound devices, so almost like a headband that can play some sound like bioral beats that are supposed to sync to mm -hmm. the same uh, wavelength of your sleep stages. They potentially can help. Um, even lighting, you know, it potentially can help for, you know, the right person, someone who has an underlying circadian rhythm issue where I recommend light boxes early in the morning because that helps shift their clock back. So people who are night owls, one of the best ways to help them sleep earlier is to expose them to bright light in the morning. And certainly that can help. 
And so you can see how sleep can be really individualized depending on what concern that they have. But I would say for most people who have chronic insomnia, it's taking a look at their specific thoughts in and around sleep. And a lot of the gadgets just aren't going to work for them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I think it is. I think it's encouraging because then you don't have to rely on something. Yes, that is true. Yeah, you can learn how to sleep. <laughs> you don't have to buy something. Yeah. And so if someone doesn't have the luxury of having a sleep coach like yourself, mm -hmm. when should they seek out a sleep medicine specialist? And if they don't, if, if what their issue is doesn't really rise to the level of doing that, um, how else should they, where else can they get some help? Got it. Yeah, great question. So I would say if you've had a conversation with your physician or your advanced care provider, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant, and you feel like you aren't making the improvements in where you'd like with your sleep, then seek out care from a, a sleep physician or sleep advanced care practitioner. Um, but typically, I would say I'm a little bit out of the norm, I'd say most sleep physicians just do obstructive sleep apnea and maybe narcolepsy and restless leg syndrome. If you're concerned more about insomnia, you want to take a look at the American Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. So typically insomnia is in the behavioral realm. So there's a lot of psychologists um, who do provide care for patients, um, typically through cognitive behavioral therapy. Since I practice integratively, I'm a big fan of clinical hypnotherapy, which really just bypasses your conscious mind and tells your subconscious mind that you can sleep. You have the ability to sleep, that you're a great sleeper. We create this awesome recording where I walk through a patient through their perfect day and they end up wherever they want, maybe in a wonderful resort and the bed is super comfortable. The minute they put their head on their pillow, they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Or maybe they're back in their own bedroom and they're able to fall asleep as deeply as they want. And they just listen to that over and over and that reprograms their mind. So there's a whole society called the American Society of Clinical Hypnotherapy. So ash.net, where you can find a licensed um, provider um, who's trained either their degree belief physicians, dentists, psychologists, social workers, counselors who've done extra training in clinical hypnotherapy. And I think that's a great option for people who are looking for help um, who have insomnia and just haven't been able to get all the help that they needed from more of a behavioral standpoint. That's really helpful. Yeah. And did you have something that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I have a checklist all about exhaustion. So I would say a common concern that women have as they get older in life is feeling exhausted. Um, since I'm a sleep doctor, sleep is really important, but it's not the only factor. So it's a checklist for you to go through, bring to your physician or your advanced care provider, and really just talk about your health. So I encourage people, if you are feeling like your energy levels are lower, or maybe that you're not quite where you want to be and you're not sure where to start, just take a look at this checklist, bring it to your doctor, and have a well-informed conversation with them about your health. And we'll make sure to link that you, uh, in, our, um, in our podcast notes. I want to go back really quickly sure. when we were talking about sleep and some of the other things that some people use, including myself, um, essential oils, bath, massage. What are your thoughts on that? Love them all. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, you know, it, it's really fascinating. I think that we get to pick and choose the things that work. 
right? And so I'm a big fan of Epsom salt baths with lavender. Um, I actually wrote a chapter on aromatherapy um, with Mindy Green. She's an herbalist who's big in the aromatherapy space for an integrative sleep book. And aromatherapy is great because it uses your senses, um, your olfactory system, and it connects to the limbic system, and it can actually slow down your brain waves. So lavender, there's actually a lot of research on lavender, and lavender's been around for ages. It's that ancient healing medicine can help you fall asleep. So either through aromatherapy, um, through baths, through massage, there's been studies where Nursing home patients, right? We want to get them off of the benzos, the sleeping pills, because we don't want them mm-hmm. to fall. So they've done studies where they just put a satchel of lavender next to their pillow. And guess what? They can fall asleep faster. They have less awakenings, and they report better sleep quality. And so the magic of herbal medicine is really big. Yeah. <laughs> and so it comes down <laughs> to sleep go-to. happens when your yeah. brain waves slow down. So the more you feel calm, the more you feel relaxed, the more you feel at peace, whether it's through a gadget or aromatherapy or massage. You know, I'm a big fan of journaling. I think just writing down your thoughts is so huge, and that helps really filter out all the things from the day. So finding what works oh, that's for you. That's a great idea. Yeah. And, and when one other supplement, and that's magnesium. Ooh, magnesium. Magnesium's great. Uh, really, the way magnesium works for sleep, it works on the GABA system. So that GABA, that neurotransmitter, can help us relax. It also can help relax the muscles. So my patients who have restless leg syndrome, um, you know, taking some magnesium supplements. I really caution with magnesium in supplement form. There's so many different types of magnesium, right? Citrate, yes. um, glycinate, triunate, and some are more pro-diarrhea. So if you're on the constipated side, you know, the magnesium citrate is probably better for you. But there's also different absorption rates. And so I read that actually one of the best ways that you can absorb magnesium is actually through your skin. So taking a bath with Epsom salts or getting magnesium oil can be really helpful. This has been amazing. And I have learned so much. What did I not ask you that you think is important for our listeners to know? One thing I want all the listeners to know is that with all the information out there, if you're not having a great night of sleep and you've tried a bunch, I would say give yourself some grace. Like, Don't shame yourself that you're not doing things right or maybe that you haven't figured it out because we're all on this journey together. And like I said, no one's a perfect sleeper 100% of the time, maybe even 80% of the time. You know, there are folks such as myself, such as Mitzi, who are here to give you good education around your sleep. And if we can't give you all the answers, keep searching. Find someone that you can connect with that can help you along your health and sleep journey. Yeah, don't feel like you're in isolation because guess what? Um, especially for women, women going through midlife, 40 to 60% of women have difficulty with their sleeping, and you certainly are not alone. And there are good resources out there. So, And absolutely, and one of the really great resources is your website. So if you would, please um, tell us what that uh, URL is. Oh, thank you, Mitzi. So my website is sleepphoria, that's S-L-E-E-P-H-O-R-I-A dot com. And it's an online educational resource that was founded on the belief that a well-rested woman has the energy, clarity, and drive to change the world. So I'm here really just to support you all, help you um, get better. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Well, Dr. Valerie Cacho, thank you so much, Dr. Val, I should say. Um, thank you so much for being with us and uh, for sharing your expertise. My pleasure, Mitzi. So nice to meet you. I learned so much from Dr. Val. I hope you did as well. There was a lot of information here, so we've summarized our conversation, and we will be posting it on our website at beyondthepapergown.com. I do want to add one thing to the great information Dr. Val provided. We spoke a bit about the changes in sleep as we age, and women can especially suffer as we go through perimenopause, with not only hot flashes that keep us up, but general insomnia as well. Studies have shown that estrogen replacement therapy improves sleep quality, enables falling asleep, decreases nighttime wakefulness, and also reduces vasomotor symptoms. So if you're suffering from symptoms of perimenopause, such as hot flashes and or insomnia, I encourage you to speak with your healthcare provider to see if hormone therapy is an appropriate option for you. Thanks as always for listening. I invite you to check out our website for more information. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you'll keep up to date on our podcast and other news. And before you leave, I hope you'll also subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. It really does help us get noticed. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. We'd love to hear your comments. Take good care. This podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and myself, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.